You are listening to an audio recording from the ministry of Jefferson Town Bible Church in Jefferson Town, Kentucky, where we gather to proclaim God's Word. For more information, please visit jtownbible.org. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 11 through 13. And if you weren't in 2820 class, um, I'll just share with you what I shared with them on a smaller scale. And uh, that is that I walked out the door this morning without my flash drives. Could have been catastrophe, but it's not. Um, And so there's no PowerPoint this morning, so I hope you're able to adjust to that reality. We just have our Bibles. (laughs) So uh, Hebrews chapter 4 is where we're at. And we can't even put the scriptures up on the screen for you. You have to look on your electronic device or in your physical copy of the scriptures to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, chapter 11, chapter 4, verse 11 through 13 this morning. 1979, and I was genuinely excited to be taking my first trip to Israel. I'd flown domestically a few times prior to that, but this was going to be an international flight. So I, I was very excited to go to Israel, but I was very also interested and excited to experience this experience of flying internationally in, in every step of the way. And, and we arrive in New York to uh, JFK Airport, and... Uh, had to go to the international terminal, and uh, that was a bit different, and uh, especially when it came uh, to going through uh, to get on the El Al Airlines, which is the Israeli Airlines, and they checked us over pretty thoroughly. At that point in time, uh, American officials didn't check over passengers uh, to the extent that they do today. Uh, but at that time, the Israelis, they thoroughly checked their uh, everyone getting on the plane. And we were told before we got to the airport, he said, now don't say a word, anything that could be connoted in any way with a terrorist, with a bomb, anything like that, because you will not get on the flight. <laughs> so no joking around about that kind of stuff. And so, I mean, they, they, they really uh, uh, communicated to us the seriousness of going through Israeli security, that they were, they were very serious about what they were doing. So we get through that, and now it's time to board the plane. And we're going down the uh, entryway to get onto the plane, and I was observant of most everybody in our group, and I noticed that some of our group was going off this way as I was approaching, going off this way, and then there were some going this way. What do I do? Are they getting on two different planes? <laughs> and if they're on two different planes, where's that other plane going? You know, and, and I'm just giving you my experience and how I processed it because I was I was taking everything seriously, and I wanted to be on the right plane. And so I get to the divide and I, I go to the left and the others go to the right, and go down the the uh, uh, entryway to the plane, and then I discover. 
like a newbie to international flying on a 747, there's two entries into the plane. It's so big, it's carrying so many people, that in order to board it efficiently, they had two entries into the plane. And so, you know, we're all on the same plane going to the same place, and it's LL, you know. But I was really watching everything carefully and seriously uh, because, you know, I wanted, I wanted to be going to the right place. I shared that with you because as we come to Romans, Romans, boy, I am all over the place this morning. Um, we will be in Hebrews, and we will uh, preach from Hebrews chapter 4. Um, but as we come to Hebrews chapter 4, this particular exhortation is an exhortation where the writer is saying, take the word of God seriously. Engage God's word seriously. So if we had the PowerPoint up here and you saw it, you would see the point of seriously engage God's word. That is the exhortation in this section of Hebrews chapter 4. The exhortations often in the book of Hebrews are exhortations for those who have been exposed to the truth of Jesus Christ, the truths pertaining to the gospel, a thorough exposure to act on those truths, to not remain in a state and a status where they're just continuing to observe, but they're not taking action. They're not responding. And here are, is another one of those exhortations. As he says in verse 11, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. The rest is the rest of salvation, the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. And so those words uh, in verse 11, it says... Be diligent to enter the rest. The word diligent is, is communicating to make haste, to uh, be sincere, to, to go after. But it's also communicating the idea of being serious about what you're doing. Seriously engage. And the word to enter is to enter into. There's a preposition with that in the Greek, and it means to, to seriously uh, engage the truth and seriously Enter into that truth by faith. And so the exhortation there is, is a very passionate exhortation to take God's word as they had been exposed to and act on it, respond to it. Be diligent to do this. Be serious about what is before you. And act on it. He says, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. And again, that example of disobedience in context was that generation of Jews who were brought up to uh, the land of Israel, and they were, at that point in time, God said, now it is time for you to enter the land, to conquer it, to go in, and to uh, act on the promises and the commands that I've given you to go in and conquer the land and make it yours. I am providing it for you. That generation of Jews got to the land believed the report of 10 of the spies that they sent into the land in that intelligence-gathering operation. That's what it was. And they came back, and two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, we can go in. Everything that these guys are saying about it is true. The cities are large, they're well-fortified. There's a number of these cities that have the big people in them, the giants, 
they have well-equipped armies. The land is as plentiful as God said it was. They, they affirmed everything that the other ten said about the land, their assessment of the land, except for this. We can go in and we can conquer it. We can do what God said we could do. The other ten said, we've assessed the land, and our assessment is, let's get back to Egypt, because if we go in there, we're going to get a serious hurt put on, it and, on us, and we will not conquer that land. That was their assessment. So what was the response of that generation of Jews to the truth. It wasn't only a response to that assessment, and it was a response to everything that they had experienced coming up to that point. They had experienced the deliverance from Egypt, the supernatural, powerful work of God in delivering that generation of Jews from Egypt. They saw the plagues that God inflicted upon the Egyptians that they did not experience. But they saw what happened to the Egyptians. And they saw as God provided for them and led them through the wilderness. They saw God bring the sea back upon the Egyptian army, the sea that they had just crossed on dry land. They walked on that dry land with the waters built up beside them. They saw it, they experienced, they lived it. It wasn't theoretical, it wasn't hypothetical, it was real, they lived it, they did it. And then they watched as that Egyptian army tried to do the same thing and God brought the waters back over them. They saw it. And they heard the voice of God at Mount Sinai. They heard the actual voice of God. How many of you this morning have heard the actual voice of God? Good, I'm glad there's that response because if someone said that they had, well... That would make for an interesting morning. <laughs> we haven't heard the voice of God. They did. And, and they were so frightened of that that they said, let Moses speak. They saw a representation of the glory of God on Mount Sinai. Have you ever seen anything physically with your eyes that expresses something of the special glory of God? No. But they did. So that all was prior to them coming to this point in the assessments. And there was more that we could enumerate that they experienced. But you get the idea. God did not hold back on demonstrating his power, giving them signs, giving them evidences of his purpose, his plan of himself. And with all that knowledge, all that exposure, all that experience, because they have an evil heart of unbelief, as the writer of Hebrews says, they come to that point and they refuse to trust God, believe God, and act on that truth, and they say, let's go back to Egypt. That's the generation that the writer of Hebrews is referring to in context here. And as he speaks of that same example of disobedience, he says, listen, when, when we come to that point of being exposed to the truth of God and the truth of his word, do not take it lightly. Do not dismiss it. Don't regard it as something that can, can be simply responded to or not responded to. Diligently, seriously take God at his word and consider it and act on it. 
Failure to do so is disobedience. Because the expectation of God is that as he reveals himself and, and you're exposed to the truth, the expectation is obedience. God doesn't give suggestions. He gives commands. And they did not. So they're an example of disobedience. The issue isn't what we are exposed to. Fundamentally, the issue is where our heart is at. You fast forward a number of centuries, and Jesus Christ is among his people, preaching, teaching, healing, doing signs, raising people from the dead. And they're still, in that context, in that setting, asking for more signs. The issue never is a lack of God revealing truth and revealing himself. The issue always is an evil heart of unbelief that leads to disobedience. So they're an example of disobedience. So the exhortation is that, that we are to seriously engage God's word. See this book, see this body of truth for what it is. It is God's truth. Do not dismiss it. Do not treat it lightly. Don't consider it as though it's just a book among books, information among Im uh, uh, information. This is God's truth. This is God's revelation. This is the only book he's ever written. The Spirit of God moved men so that what we have recorded here on the pages of this book is the inspired and errant Word of God. God's Word must be engaged with all sincerity, with all seriousness, because of what it is. It's the Word of God. So God's Word demands that we respond with obedience. Engage God's word, seriously engage God's word, and respond with obedience is the exhortation in verse 11. Don't be like the disobedient, be obedient. So our responsibility, not only as believers, but as, as people are exposed to the truths of the gospel, their responsibility is to obey and respond in repentance and faith. So the first response to engaging, seriously engaging the Word of God is respond with obedience. Respond obediently. And in verse 12, we see the vehicle of obedience or for obedience. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I love that verse. I love that verse. It's been a favorite of mine for a long, long time. It's an awesome verse. It says an awesome realities about the Word of God. But this is the vehicle for obedience. We are obedient to God through His Word. We respond to his word. We engage his word sincerely in this vehicle of truth. This body of truth is the vehicle by which we truly obey God. Let's see what it says in verse 12 about the word of God. For the word of God is living and powerful. 
That's what it is. That's what it is by its nature. It's it, Because it is the word of God, from the living God, it is living. It's not static. It, it doesn't ever become irrelevant. It never becomes obsolete. Take any of the textbooks that were in use at the turn of the 20th century, which would be 1900. And how do you think it would fly if it was stated that we are going to use textbooks that were in use in 1901 in all of our public schools in 2019? How, how do you think it would go? What would be the response? It wouldn't fly. Why wouldn't it fly? Okay, so there's additional information. And then also, yeah, and, and information that's in those textbooks, uh, there's information, not all of it, but there's information that has been demonstrated to be incorrect. So why in the world would we teach students in 2019 information that is demonstrably incorrect as reflected in textbooks in 1901? The point is simply this. God's word never becomes obsolete. God's word never needs correction. God's word never needs modernizing. It's the living word of God from the living God. It is always correct. It is always on point. It can never be improved upon. It is the living, powerful word of God, dunamis. God's word has power to it because it's his word. It's not a mystical thing. The spirit of God uses the word of God to affect the plan and purposes of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by You've got to hear the word of God. The spirit of God uses the word of God to affect the plan and purpose of God. And that begins with justification. It doesn't stop there. It begins there. But it's because of the author of this book, God the Holy Spirit, that makes it what it is. There's a lot of words in this book that we find in every other book. But because of the way that these words are arranged, by whom they are arranged, the Holy Spirit these words reflect accurately the mind of God, the revelation of God, and what is said in the Bible is, is true and accurate, whether it's talking about sin, whether it's talking about historical personalities, whether it's talking about events, the descriptions of them, the people, everything is accurate and true. It's the Word of God. This book is unique. The truths expressed in this book are unique. No book written by man, even the most holy and righteous and spiritual of men, godly of men, approach the character and the nature of this book. It's the Word of God. So the author says, For the Word of God that you have been exposed to is living and powerful. Not only that, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, I haven't messed with swords in my life. I've held a few replicas in my hand, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a real, actual sword that's really used 
and used in warfare, and uh, those swords were prepped for battle. And they wanted them to be effective instruments and tools of warfare. They didn't have a two-edged sword to cut the butter or to fillet the meat. The two-edged sword was for battle. And it was to be used, it was to be effective. So it had to be sharp. And, and they were sharp. And he says the word of God, using this metaphor, is sharper than any two-edged sword. So those living in the first century understood how sharp those double-edged swords were. And the time and the effort put into making sure that they were sharp and that the sharpness was maintained. And what is said about the Word of God is that it is far sharper than any two-edged sword. What's he mean by that? Well, it's, it's so sharp that the truths of God's Word are able to pierce even to the division of soul and spirit. We have a difficulty defining and describing soul and spirit. In, in theological circles, there are those who are dichotomous, believe that men is made up of two, um, two components primarily, the physical, the body, and the immaterial. And they say the soul and spirit, they're, they're essentially synonymous. You have those who uh, are trichotomous. And they say, no, the scriptures refer to man as a uh, three-part being, a tripartite being. Uh, body, man has a soul, and man has a spirit. And they say the spirit, some trying to figure that out, they say the spirit is that part of man that relates to God, and the soul is that part that contains the emotions, the will, etc. Well, I mean, how do you know that for sure? Can we peer into the immaterial part of man and see with clarity how all that functions and operates? No. But the Word of God is able to penetrate to those distinctions within us that nothing else can do. The truths of God's Word are able to penetrate to the depths of the soul, to the depths of the spirit, where nothing else and no one else can penetrate. The best psychiatrist, the best psychologist cannot even begin to come close to penetrating the soul of man. Psychologists and psychiatrists, you know, that's what they study. Is the psyche of man, which is a Greek term, talking about his soul. The soukos. But they're limited because they have a finite ability to understand and process information, and then how accurately are they processing it? We put a lot of confidence, I mean, shouldn't say we, but men put a lot of confidence in psychiatrists and psychologists today and in their observations and their analysis, and really shouldn't, because at best they're incorrect. But the Word of God is able to, to, to pierce, to slice into those deep parts of who we are. And of the joints and marrow, marrow, It's able to go into the most intricate parts of who we are and do this. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God lays bare who we are so clearly, so effectively, 
that it discerns the very thoughts of the heart, the very intentions of the heart. This is the vehicle for obedience. In other words, he's saying, seriously engage this unique body of truth that reveals God, that reveals Jesus Christ, that reveals the gospel in all its glory, and respond to it, engage it. Don't be dismissive of it. Throughout Hebrews, our strong exhortations for those who have been exposed to the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel, to respond to what they've heard. Read this uh, by Paul Seeger, who is the, the head of Biblical Ministries Worldwide, and he asked the question in his blog, are you too passive when you evangelize? He says, you can't talk to someone, you can't talk someone into being a Christian, which is true. But you should try. We obviously cannot control the decisions of unbelievers, but we can be passionate about influencing them. Notice in the following verses that there is an element in persuasion in evangelism. An element. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That's what's happening in Hebrews. You've got the truth in front of you. Act on it. Act on it. It's not like, well, there's the truth. I hope you do the right thing with it. The exhortation is act on what is in front of you, what God has put in front of you. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences, 2 Corinthians 5.11. Now, then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks, Acts 18.4. This man is persuading the people to worship God, Paul was accused of in his ministry team. Acts 18.13. Paul was arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Acts 19.18. Do you think that in such a short time, Agrippa asked, you can persuade me to become a Christian? Acts 26.28. So the very words are that, that we see concerning Paul and his ministry team is that they didn't just come in and say, here's some information that you were unaware of before. Do with it as you like. It was, here's the truth. Act on it. Now, he couldn't make them, but the appeal was there, act on the truth. So these verses may mess up some of our theology, but evangelism in the New Testament was not a passive declaration of truth. Here it is. If you want to believe it, fine. If you don't, fine. I've done my part. I've communicated the truth. Um, it is the word of God and the work of God that brings about faith and repentance. And that is so true. But there is a persuasion role of the believer. Somehow God uses the passion and persistence of the evangelist to impact others with the gospel. Be passionate about the truth, in essence. Be passionate about what we're communicating. Be passionate about God, about Jesus Christ. About salvation in Him and in Him alone. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Be passionate about that. In a humbly, sincere, passionate way, but passionate. For instance, notice in Acts 14:1 that there is a connection with the way Paul spoke and the response of the people. 
Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And he concludes by saying, hmm, it seems that God wants us to be persuasive and passionate in our evangelism. That's what Hebrews is. It's a passionate book calling upon those who've been exposed to the truth to act on it. And why? Because the word of God, in verse 12, is the vehicle for obedience. It's living. It's powerful. Don't, don't be dismissive of it. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. As people are exposed to it, individuals are exposed to it, it's going to cut into their soul. It's going to cut into their heart. In verse 13, we have the accountability for obedience. Why should a person, why should you and I be obedient? What's the accountability? Verse 12 leads into verse 4. Because of the nature of the word of God being what it is, it discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. Ultimately, this is a reality. Verse 13. For there and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must what? Give account. Recently, I've been contemplating not this verse in particular, but that truth. As I think about people who get under my skin, you ever have people get under your skin? Anybody not? We got a lot of honest people here this morning. <laughs> Are people that just, you, they make you angry or you just really react to what they say in such a way that you just, when you hear their name, you just have a very negative, heavy reaction toward them. And one thing I've been realizing recently is that our Lord Jesus Christ experienced that. The apostles experienced that. They had people who opposed them deeply falsely accused them. That's why Jesus Christ ended up on the cross. This is a plan of the Father. Yes, we know that from Scripture. But the human means for that happening was false accusation. They used the legal system. They corrupted the legal system as it existed in Judaism and as it existed in Roman governance in Jerusalem. They, they corrupted the system. They used the legal system to commit an illegal act. And Jesus Christ was accused wrongly. And he is the one who ended up on that cross under the punishment of capital punishment. And he was put to death. And yet, he is the one that prayed, Father, in John chapter 17, Father, do what? Forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. He's able to push past the opposition and see their ultimate greatest need. He knew that every soul, every person was ultimately going to have to stand before the living God and give account and their greatest need was to have their sin dealt with. And the only way their sin could be dealt with was for Jesus Christ, God the Son, to bear 
the punishment for humanity's sin in his body. And he did. Because he was able to push past the lies and the hatred and the opposition and the hypocrisy. He pushed past all of that in the sense that he saw beyond that. He didn't let that stop him. He saw their greatest need and then acted in relation to their greatest need. As Stephen, in the book of Acts, was being stoned because he merely was preaching the gospel. That's it. In the process of preaching the gospel, he called them out, his fellow Jews, and let them know that they were sinners, that they had violated the, the character, the nature of God with their sin and sinfulness, that they had put the Messiah, the Lord of glory, on the cross. I mean, he called them out in the process of preaching the gospel, but is that worth putting somebody to death? Is that worth putting them in a pit and literally snuffing out their life through stoning? That still happens in some parts of our world. But that happened to Stephen, and he prayed a similar prayer that our Lord prayed about the very ones who were stoning. He's able to look past their hatred, their vitriol, their opposition, and see their ultimate need. Everyone's ultimate need is a reality that everyone, everyone will ultimately stand before the living God. This has been an audio recording from the ministry of Jefferson Town Bible Church in Jefferson Town, Kentucky, where we gather to proclaim God's Word. For more information, please visit jtownbible.org.